aimed at you. If you've got family and kiddos, try to facilitate whatever it takes for the ladies to go and have this time together. It's really valuable. Good. Okay, we're going to jump right in because, man, are we looking at some stuff today. This is actually a theological hinge point in the whole Bible. So, I mean, this is no pressure, Mark. Thanks, Jim, for going to, you know, Mozambique on the Hinge Sunday in the whole story of the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, actually, he's doing fine, seems to be, I guess, and and, uh, he drugged Fred Sharp with him, and they're teaching. He has the rest of this week to go, so continue to pray for him. But this actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to continue in this great reversal that we started through the summer as we looked at the Beatitudes, because the Beatitudes are not a story of, oh, this is what you should try harder to be like. They're, they're a flip over on its back, a turn turtle of what everybody had always thought was the truth about what it meant to be blessed, to be uh, fulfilled, to have a wonderful life. They thought if you had plenty, then you're blessed. And Jesus flipped it over and said, no, the poor in spirit are blessed. They thought if you had all of your family around you, you're blessed. Jesus said, actually, the mourners are blessed. It even goes so far to where he ends, double two different Beatitudes talking about being persecuted. Those are the blessed ones. That doesn't make any sense. We read them now from our sensibilities after 2,000 years of hearing them, and we think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It didn't make any sense to anybody as Jesus was teaching that. So what he does right now is he's got to look at one of the most important pieces in the Jews' entire definition of who they were and why they were here. And that was the Mosaic Law. He's going to grab the Mosaic Law and he's going to say, look, we're going to talk about the law now and I once again, I'm going to change some things in what you've always thought was true. I'm going to reverse some things, flip some things over. In fact, what Jesus does with the law is makes it harder foreshadow for next week if you ask for the good news or the bad news do you want the good news or the bad news first basically jesus gives the bad news first in the sermon it's the truth he makes it harder than they thought it would be and it's based on this passage that we're going to read today so we're going to put it up on the screen or you could pull out those bibles in front of you and turn to page i think it's 786 it's matthew chapter 5. Let's see, where are we? Help me, help a brother out. Page 786, I got it. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at this very small collection of words that is huge in the whole understanding of how you read your Bible. Now, I don't know what to do. Here's what I would suggest. If I, if, if I don't do it for you today, that's fine. Just go ahead and read the rest of the sermon, and that would be fine with me. And by that, I mean the Sermon on the Mount, because that's actually worth your time. But we need to recognize that there's a couple of things going on here, because as Jesus clarifies this, he has looming in the background two things that are going to be possibilities that were true in Jesus' day then and are still true right now in our situation. And these two things are this. One, legalism. 
Legalism is a strict adherence to the lines and the letters and picking apart the, the, the laws and the things that are very specific and saying, this is what I've got to do. I'm going to ask you this question right now, and I'm going to keep asking you through the sermon to consider this. How do you read your Bible? Do you look at your Bible and look for commands and things to do, and then do you decide, how am I going to obey that, or more likely, how am I going to avoid obeying that? How do you read your Bible? Is the Bible a list of do's and don'ts to you? And this is how we approach the entire relationship with God. Legalism says that's the way the mechanism works. We have to behave somehow. There's a contract of behavior between us and God, and if we behave a certain way, God's happy with us, and maybe even we'd be fulfilled. How many of you grew up in what you would consider a legalistic church culture? How many of you grew up this, and I have my hand up that way? Oh, not as many as the first service. Those first service people are legalists, a bunch of them. Um, I don't know what your backstory was. That could be everything from not even Protestantism. It could be Catholicism. It could be a number of different church cultures where you knew not only were there clear laws written in the Bible, but there were things that went beyond the Bible that were expected of you to behave a certain way, to walk a certain way, to not talk a certain, not do certain things. Legalism is looming in the background, lurking. The other end of the spectrum, the other end, if the pendulum swings, is antinomianism, anti-against Namos, the Greek word for law, anti-law. It's basically anarchy. It's basically chaos. It's basically, we have total freedom. We can do whatever we want. Listen to some of this language. See if it sounds familiar to you. Jesus came to love us. He told us to love each other. We shouldn't be worried about what the other person is doing. What they do is their own business. I'm not going to judge them. I don't have any consideration for what... There are situations define what our ethics should be. We, we can do as long as we just love people. Does that sound familiar? It should sound very familiar because antinomianism is very current in the drive of our culture right now. Our, our culture is trying to say, don't put a bunch of laws down and tell me what to do. How many of you grew up in a church culture that was like, Jesus just loves us and we really don't want anybody to feel bad? Anybody grew up in a culture like that? Yeah. So, and some of us did. And there are churches that are preaching that. There are cultures that are preaching that. I'll remind you a couple weeks ago, I, I gave a, a quote by Viktor Frankl from his Man's Search for Meaning so insightful. He said, it's a great thing that the United States, in effect, he said this, that the United States has the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast. That's wonder wonderful. Doesn't that fit us? We're all about autonomy. We're all about personal decision, personal responsibility. I do. I have freedom, right? Frankel said, if we were actually complete as what it means to be a successful society, we would put on the West Coast a Statue of Responsibility. Yeah, we laugh because, first of all, it's a joke that it would be on the West Coast. Second of all, it's an impossible thought in our culture that we would put equal emphasis on codes, on actually having a sense of responsibility to each other or something that was higher than us. 
And we would have that equal in our mind as freedom and autonomy and individualism. That's ludicrous in our mindset. So we struggle, these lurking, looming things in the background, we often struggle. The church has swung the pendulum off and over towards legalism to try to counteract this freedom thing, and we're trying to figure this out. So now let's read these verses. <laughs> you probably already read them a few times, and I was kind of hoping you'd do that, by the way. It's a fair trick. Uh, how did you read these verses? Let's say this, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That is a summary of the entire scriptures, not just the Mosaic law. Don't think I've come to abolish those. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Those words are going to be very important. For truly, I tell you, you can count on this statement until heaven and earth disappears. Not the smallest little letter, not the least stroke of a pen by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Does that sound like antinomianism to you? Like Jesus is saying, we don't need no stinking law. That's absolutely the opposite of what this is saying. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is a critical... This is the entire message of what Matthew is getting at. What was this kingdom that he kept offering to everyone? It's a bigger movement than just his 12... We're in the kingdom of heaven. What's the next part, Anne? Go to that next page. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, listen to this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, what just happened there? Did he say, unless you live so much of the law and keep the law and, and know every single one of these things, did he just say you cannot be saved as we would use the terminology now? Did you think that's what Jesus' message was? If you're saying in your mind, no, I don't think that's... Okay, you're right. That's not the message of Jesus. He's not now saying, look guys, you not only had the law all this time and knew how to live into it, I'm telling you, unless you make the law harder than what you've known, you have no way to get to God. That can't be the message of Jesus. It cannot be. Because we know how this is going to play out. We know the gospel story. So something else is going on here. He didn't throw the law away, and he also didn't say, okay, so you've got to embrace every single letter of this thing. He doesn't do that. So what is he saying? How do you read this? How do you understand this? What happens inside of your heart? What are the reactions to this? Now let's look back up to the first slide, if you would, Anne. Put that up so we can see the very front of the verse. Because this is the critical key to unlock and understand what he's going to say. Because he starts with this. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law, the whole scriptures. I've not come to abolish them. Whenever you see in the New Testament, in particular in Greek, it also is true in Hebrew, but not as much as in Greek. When somebody says something twice, it's not like they forgot they just said it a second ago. They always say it twice as an emphasis model. He says to us, look, I did not come to kick out the Old Testament. Now let me ask you this. How do you read the Old Testament? 
Do you marginalize the Old Testament in effect? Do you say, well, okay, I see that. Is, is this how you have dealt with the 613 laws of the Old Testament? If you, as you've said, oh, that's Old Covenant. We don't need to pay any attention to that. I mean, there's a lot of teaching that has happened over the two millennia since Jesus that have tried to categorize the law and say, well, the, the, like the ceremonial law, the cultic law, the way that they behaved around, we don't have to behave in, into those anymore because that was just about the ceremonies, so that doesn't matter. But these other laws, like love your neighbor and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, well, we will we'll obey those. And of course, we'll keep the Ten Commandments. And we'll keep some of these other things, but some of these others go. You see what we do? We start actually picking and choosing. Is that really what you want to do with the Scripture? Do you want to take the revealed Word of God and say, this part is more important than this part? This part has literally been thrown out? Is that what the writer of Hebrews was doing when he said, well, there's a better covenant in Jesus, was he saying basically take the Old Testament and throw it away? No chance, no how was that the message. It was not take those things and just automatically, because it's in the Old Testament, put it under subjection to the New Testament and read it through a New Testament lens. What I just described to you is Mormon doctrine. That's the exact model that they use. They take the Old Testament, they put it down here. Take the New Testament, put it right here. Take the things on the gold plates given to Joseph Smith, they put it here. They take the Law and the Covenants here. They take the Pearl of Good Price, they put it here. And they read everything through lenses down through. And basically take the, the Old Testament, and eventually it doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore. Is that your doctrine? In a lot of our minds, and growing up in a legalistic culture, that's how we dealt with the laws in the Old Testament. We just marginalized them. We just took them and chucked them under the bus. It's before the cross. didn't matter. That's clearly not the message of Jesus here. Clearly not. So what do these words mean? Abolish twice. Did I come to abolish them? Abolish... Abolish means what you think that it means. It's not a very common word in the New Testament. It means tear down, destroy, tear it up, basically throw it away. Now here's what the rabbis taught. This is the context into which Jesus was talking using this language of abolishing the, the Old Testament. They would say, if you take little tiny pieces of the law that you consider unimportant and you start pulling them out and tossing them away, it's like pulling, it's like Jenga. It's like you're pulling little pieces out and pretty soon the whole thing collapses. That was the image that they used. Jesus is pulling on that exact language and saying, look, I am not here pulling apart the law, the whole Old Testament scripture, to pick and choose the things that we're going to carry forward. That's not how this is working. I am saying, here's the critical word. I'm here to fulfill the law. Not come to abolish it, but to fulfill. Now, typically, if we were talking this language, we would say, I, I didn't come to get rid of the law, but I came to keep the law. Or I came to obey the law. Or I came to confirm the law. That would be the typical contrast, the antithesis of abolish. 
Typically, we would say, well, I guess then the only other option is we need to obey every single letter of the law. And that's not what Jesus said. And that's the critical piece of this whole thing. It's the key that unlocks this. Why it's a hinge for the whole rest of the Bible. Because Jesus said, what's the word? I came to fulfill the law. Now, what did he mean by that? If we can get to that, we can actually say, okay... So we can now understand what he's going to proceed to do because let me tell you what he does. This is a foreshadow of the next several weeks. He takes murder and connects it with anger. He takes uh, divorce. He takes adultery. He takes the uh, oaths and the covenants that we make. He takes promises. He takes a number of things and makes them impossible to live into. Impossible. He doesn't just make it like, oh, this is now, I just turned it up from a four to a five. He makes it to where nobody that you know, including you, could possibly live into that. That's what he's going to do. So you have to understand before we go any further, when he says, I fulfill the law, this is the critical piece. And the fulfill is this. Fulfill is, I came to bring to total fruition I came to actually listen to the word fulfill typically what you would think would that would be fulfill a promise or a prophecy would be the the thing ahead of time you notice what he referred to the law and the prophets Jesus is saying everything that is in the scripture I came and filled in all of the blanks on this it's all going to happen because of who I am. I fulfill the promises. The promises to David, the promises to Moses, the promises to Abraham, the promises to the great kings, the promises to the prophets, and through the prophets, I am here to fulfill those. The ideas that drove the law and were part of God's heart and plan for His people across the entire Old Testament I am here to fulfill those. Now, how did he do that? <laughs> this, this is the juncture. Because if you said, if he would say right there, I am here not to abolish them, but to keep them or obey them, then we have a real problem. Why is that? Stop and think with me through Jesus' life. Did Jesus keep and obey every detail of the law as they had received it. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's interesting and intriguing in all of the details that he kind of ramps it up on with uh, murder and, and you know, divorce and, and all the other things. He never mentions Sabbath. <laughs> that might have been strategic because when you go forward just a couple chapters from here in the story in Matthew... He's already running into trouble on the Sabbath. He's already behaving in ways, doing things that for centuries they have taught were absolutely out of bounds. This is breaking the law. You're not keeping the law. And Jesus did not keep a number of the aspects of the Sabbath law. You remember what he said? He even had the, if you will, audacity, but he was Jesus, to say, I, the Son of Man, am the Lord, the master of the Sabbath. Who can say that? 
Who can say, you thought that the Sabbath was here basically to control man, but I'm saying to you, the Sabbath is here for man's benefit. Who could say that? No typical rabbi got to say that. He could say, I can heal because this is God's heart and mind for people, is to free them from their slavery. I can heal on the Sabbath. I can behave in ways... My, my disciples can walk through the fields and take grain and eat on the Sabbath just like David and his soldiers. He wasn't undoing the Old Testament and all those statements. He also, by the way, wasn't chucking Sabbath out. He was saying, look, I am going to fulfill every aspect of it and here's how he did it. He fulfilled it, all of the things through the entire Old Testament by finalizing the entire process. He was crucified because he broke the law. That's why that the, the teachers and the, the officials finally said, he is undermining our entire system of thinking, is what he's doing. We've got to crucify this guy. What they had no idea they were doing was physically accomplishing the mission of him fulfilling the law. It's an unbelievable turn on the tables. You want to talk about a great reversal. The cross is the greatest great reversal in the history of the world. We kind of take it for granted because we've heard about it so many times as Christians for two millennia. What Jesus accomplished to have the men who had the law in their hands used the law against him to have him crucified and they accomplished the mission in doing that is an unbelievable event. Nobody could have seen it here, but they see it later and it all starts to make sense. And they say, oh, in the cross, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his distribution to us of the Holy Spirit, in his ascension, all of this was fulfillment of those great promises and the fulfillment of what God's heart and mind was for people. In redemptive process, it completes redemption. And now let me ask you this question. Did the apostles and the disciples keep the law? If you're kind of going, hmm, I'm thinking through, to some degree, yes, they did to some degree. But how did they decide what they were going to keep? We'll do one more look here. Let's flip over to Acts chapter 15. It is, to me, a secondary hinge that is just as important in our whole understanding of this whole thing. Acts chapter 15, which is page... I've got this in here. In those books in front of you, page 896. Or we're going to read through this. Because this is a major piece of the law. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. And this is north of Jerusalem. It's out of the country of Israel, actually north of it. And they're teaching the believers, the followers of Jesus, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They're connecting salvation just like it almost seemed like Jesus was doing earlier. They're connecting these things. You've got to obey this law. Circumcision was like the baseline definition of being a Jew. If you were a male, you were circumcised early in your life, and if you wanted to become a Jew, you were circumcised. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. To be one of the people of God, you're circumcised. To them, this is a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you do this? They're saying. 
This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other people, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. A main tenant of the law. The church sent them on their way as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. Go to the next page, Miss Ann. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported everything that God had done. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Did you remember that a bunch of the Pharisees actually knew enough scripture that they saw Jesus' life and ministry and they became believers. They followed him. And several of them who are believing and following, these are not the enemies. These are part of the camp. They come in and they say, um, you know, this is what we've got to do. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required now to keep the law of Moses, all 613 laws. They ramp it up. It's not just circumcision. If you're going to be a people of God, you've got to keep the law. The apostles and elders met together, scratching their heads. After much discussion, go to the next page, Peter got up. So Peter, one of the key guys, addresses them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we see what a big deal this is, but this is mind-numbing to them. They were sure only the Jewish people would have the Messiah blessings on them and now it extends to Gentiles they're trying to figure this out how do we never the Gentiles need to follow he did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith now then why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear isn't this the truth honest any of you know anybody who keeps any law code in its completeness Anybody know anybody like that? Nobody ever has. Nobody has ever kept. In fact, sometimes because the laws almost cancel each other out, it makes it impossible to do so. So why are we making this harder for the Gentiles? No, next page. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are. And the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul talk about their ministry in the Gentiles. When they finished... James spoke up. You've got the pillars of the church here. The, the key writers, John isn't mentioned, but I'm sure John was there. I'm certain of it. And they're trying to navigate this thing and figure it out. And James says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described, Peter has described, how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. We can skip over that next little part and go to the next page. But basically, we have prophecy that talks to this. The Gentiles will bear my name. It's my judgment, he says, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, and here's what they boil the whole Mosaic law down right at this point. They boil it down to tell them to abstain from food polluted to idols by idols, from worshiping and sexual immorality up on the high places. That's implied in there. Next page. From eating meat strangled, of strangled animals and from eating blood. Most of it is about dietary restrictions. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times. It's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And in effect, he says, the law is still with us, guys. 
the law is still right here. People still know and respect the law. And here's what happens. The law is optional, but not willy-nilly optional. Oh, is that compassionate? Does that make people feel better about themselves? Does this something that, that won't offend people? It's not that. Or, oh, we should keep that one because it's really, really uh, talked about. We've got five proof passages from the Old Testament or the New Testament show. No, it's not like that. It is, we can make some decisions based on what the Holy Spirit does inside of us and inside of us as a group of people and leaders and we can draw conclusions about what we're going to keep. Now let me tell you the rest of the story. In the very next chapter, what was the first issue on the table in this story here? What was the first thing? Circumcision. In the very next chapter, Paul goes and brings in Timothy to be a part of his ministry. And Paul looks at the circumstances that they're going to be going to and all the Jews they're going to speak with. And Paul says, Timothy, you need to get circumcised. Wait, I thought he just said we didn't have to be circumcised. He didn't have to be circumcised. You hear that? This is now lo no longer based on following the letters and the lines. And the, it's not about following and keeping those. It's about how does this affect things in connection with the redemptive plan of God that Jesus has already fulfilled, by the way. How do we now make decisions to say, what's in the best interest of everybody around here and how is this going to work? And we have freedom. And at the same time, we may restrict ourselves and poor Timothy has to get a circumcision done. A couple of chapters later, it actually talks about in Galatians 2. He grabs Titus. He evaluates the circumstance. He tells Titus, you don't have to get circumcised. Timothy's probably going, well, that's not very fair. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. And yes, I believe that's probably part of it. And at the same time, if Timothy understood what the decision was made and how it was made and what it meant, now we're talking. And sometimes the, the conclusion that's drawn from all of this is we don't need to follow those laws. We don't have to treat people with disdain the way that those laws did. We can even abolish slavery eventually. You know the Bible never teaches against slavery. If you just followed the letter and the laws, you can make a complete airtight case for slavery. No, we don't need to do that. We can follow the redemptive plan of God and be about the business and the heart and the mind of God. Or sometimes it will be more restrictive. Sometimes it may even cost us our lives. This is not about just personal feeling and how's my self-esteem or someone else's. You see what happens here? Jesus says, look, I didn't come to just write it off and I'm going to tell you this is, the standard of God actually is harder than you even think it is. But what I want you to know is I'm going to fulfill all of this. And then ultimately it's not about your relationship to the law. And that being about your relationship with God. It's actually about the relationship of the law to me, Jesus, and your relationship to me. And that's how this moves forward. 
And that's how we make decisions that are not the exact letters and the lines of the law anymore. We're not required to follow those letters and lines. And sometimes we need to ramp it up and make it harder. But we need to follow the Holy Spirit. We need to trust each other. We need to consider what's happening in our world around us. We really do. It's part of it. We need to consider the impact on what it means about the gospel message to the world next to us. We need to weigh those things out. It's way more work. It's way more work than just finding the 613 laws and following them. Way more work. But it's a blast because it's actually us getting to engage in God's redemptive plan with Him on the terms that Jesus described. Let's pray. Lord, this is amazing. We could keep the Sabbath. We could view the dietary restrictions from the Old Testament as beneficial. We could do all kinds of things. And we can consider those as part of your plan or not. That's the amazing freedom. It doesn't wipe the law out, but it gives us the opportunity to evaluate, to use the Holy Spirit that you bestowed upon us and not just behave as if we don't need a Holy Spirit. All we need is a Bible. It was not your plan. But it also doesn't just wipe the Bible off the map. Thank you for explaining in such a concise, small space and helping us understand what your thinking was. And as we continue to move along and understand and sometimes raise the bar of difficulty and sometimes uh, relax the bar uh, because it is your plan and your business, help us with wisdom, with uh, love, with grace, with courage, with also fear of you that's appropriate fear with fear of the consequences of sin because sin is still real and has real consequences. So help us to learn how to navigate that great tension. And uh, we're grateful for the words that you gave to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.